All right, let's uh, pause and pray. Father God, help us to meditate rightly on your word, even the fact that it's open here. Help us to understand. Help us, Lord, in your great mercy and grace to watch you make us what we're not, teach us what we don't know, help us to rejoice in the things that we have yet to rejoice in based on what you're doing and who you are. Lord, there's great and awesome truths here. And sometimes they feel ordinary and normal for us to encounter, but the reality is they're not. And so I pray that the awesome wonder of your revelation will not be lost on us in this hour, but our glory in you, our adoration for you would grow because you speak. And so by your mercy and your grace and your loving kindness, would you feed us from your hand, teach us from this great truth. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. As we finish chapter 4 here, we're moving into a pretty intense part of Matthew, right? The Sermon on the Mount. It's huge. Uh, hugely important. Carries a lot of weight. It's something that we'll be in for a while to make sure that we don't miss anything from there. But as we move into there, I want you to remember back when we first started Matthew that when we laid the foundation for kind of what this book is, the structure, who Matthew is, why he wrote it, how he wrote it, that I told you that Matthew has a focus on discipleship like no other gospel writer. That there is more detail about discipleship in this gospel than probably all the other gospels combined. And that Matthew pays careful attention to bring us the details of kingdom citizenship. We talked about the kingdom last time. Jesus started his public ministry by telling us to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is that kingdom? What's it look like? The kingdom is infiltrating the kingdom of darkness, so to speak, which is this world and whatever Satan has dominion over, under the authority of God for his purposes. And so this kingdom, this lesson about the kingdom of heaven and what it is and what it looks like and what it looks like to live in it, despite the fact that it's not fully actualized in the tangible yet, is what we're getting ready to dive into. And it's starting here by detailing uh, in brief, kind of the, the call of what your Bible might call the first disciples, but it needs to be labeled the first apostles. These men who were called by Jesus to abandon everything, to be with him for three years, follow him, watch him, uh, kind of train with him, and then be able to go out once they're filled by the Spirit after his resurrection to lay the foundation of the church, 
They're laying the foundation of the church not by what uh, they want to teach. They're laying the foundation of the church by what they've been taught. How they have seen the kingdom as Jesus brings the kingdom wherever he goes. And that's going to be very important. Because when we get to the second half of what we're talking about today, we're going to have to realize that wherever Jesus goes, the kingdom goes. Wherever Jesus is, the kingdom is. He is the one who brings the kingdom. He is the one who reigns in the kingdom. He is the one who epitomizes what the kingdom is. We were just talking in Sunday school about 1 Corinthians 13 and how God is love, right? It's one of his characteristics that he desires to display to the universe. And, and I always tell people the most important thing about 1 Corinthians 13 and that description of love is that we have to look to who that is. We want to emulate those things, right? Love is part of the fruit of the Spirit, but love is God. It's personified in Jesus. And it is what we're going to see from each other perfectly in His kingdom. The awesome thing is you and I get to experience that now as His disciples, but Jesus is these things. He exists as love. He exists as the perfect, righteous King of this eternal, heavenly kingdom. And as we finish chapter 4 and move into chapter 5, we're going to begin to see exactly what the kingdom looks like. And it's going to confront us, right? Because naturally, we're not citizens of that type of kingdom. Our hearts, our minds, our behavior displays that we are naturally children of a different kingdom. A kingdom that's passing away, a kingdom that is come, uh, going to come under the destruction of the king of the greatest kingdom. But that Jesus, that king, has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Now what is that? That's what we want to know. And that's what we want to see. And hopefully, that's what we want to be. So, here's, here's the first call of the first apostles who are going to eventually come to live a life and proclaim that way in following Jesus in this kingdom. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. So first of all, let's, let's put this in context before we start jumping to this uh, discussion about how we need to abandon everything and, and follow Jesus in his kingdom initiatives. Now, Simon, Peter, and Andrew are brothers who are in the occupation of fishermen. Now, before this call, they had heard and seen Jesus. How do we know that? From surveying the Gospels and going to John chapter 1, verse 35 through 42, we see there that Andrew 
is a, is a disciple of John. He's a learner of John the Baptist, okay? <clears throat> he's out there in the wilderness in the Jordan with him, and he's learning uh, what John is teaching. John's teaching repentance. John is teaching that the king is coming, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the very same thing that Jesus started out teaching. And Andrew is learning that. And then we see in that passage in John chapter 1 that twice John the Baptist points out Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The second time he points that out, Andrew decides, maybe I should follow that Lamb. And what John is doing is something we discussed last time, right? As, as John's arrested and eventually beheaded, he's decreasing and Jesus is increasing. And what John is doing in that moment, especially for his disciples, is saying, okay, your time with me is about over, and there's somebody who I told you about that was coming after me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, there he is, follow him. And essentially that's the call of, of all of us to one another. We're not pointing to a certain teacher or a certain preacher or a certain person and saying, you need to follow that person. You and I are both pointing to Jesus to follow him. That's what John's doing for his people. That's what we should be doing for each other. And so Andrew follows Jesus. He goes and finds his brother Peter and introduces him to Jesus. He tells Peter, I think we found the Messiah. So he brings Peter to him, and they begin to hear from Jesus and desire to follow him. So by the time we get to this scene where he calls them out of their uh, fishing occupation, their boat to follow him, they've kind of been prepared for that in a way. So it's, it's not like a stranger has just encountered them and they just automatically decide, yeah, this guy said let's follow him, so let's go do that. They've heard about him. And so by the time he calls them to actually follow him, they've kind of been prepared to do so. Now, what is unique about this situation, and eventually with James and John, is that as Jesus is beginning this messianic mission, the way that he calls the apostles to follow him in that is to abandon everything they know, abandon their livelihood, even uh, turn away, not in a negative sense, but in a, in a physical sense, from their family. Uh, since this is kind of a family business for both sets of brothers, it was probably a fairly lucrative business. They had a great foundation. They had a good-looking future. Everybody needs to eat. Fish repopulate. There's always supply and there's always demand. But they, as apostles who are going to lay the foundation of the church by the word of God that they learned and that they heard preached and that they fully believe in, they are called to abandon everything. You and I, when Jesus calls us to follow him, may not be called to quit our jobs and leave our family and leave our a home, and, and go somewhere where he's leading us to go. That may not be our context. But we are called to leave and abandon certain things when he calls. 
We're called to lead the kingdom of darkness. We're called to abandon sin. We're called to turn our backs on the things that we once walked in. The way of life that we once lived. The things we gave our adoration and praise and worship and time and energy and money to. The things that held the place of God in our lives but weren't God. And we're then called in whatever context he calls us or leaves us, to be a part of his mission of building his church by doing the same thing he told Andrew and Peter he was going to make them to do. And I, and I love how Jesus is always able to speak into the context in the present life of the people he's addressing. I mean, just watch him through the Gospels. Anytime he encounters somebody, he knows how to encounter them right where they are. Not to remove them uh, mentally or, or physically or spiritually from their context, but to speak into that the Gospel. Remember the woman at the well in John 4, the Samaritan woman. He knows how to deal with her right there in that context. And he knows how to uh, proclaim the realities of what Andrew and Peter are going to be in their context. There's a Sea of Galilee, there's a boat, there's their net, they're fishing. He says, hey, you follow me, and what you're doing now, I'm going to lead you and make you to do with men and women. That Greek word there for men actually means men and women. In chapter 13, verses 47 through 50, Jesus tells a brief parable that kind of personifies exactly what's happening there. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. The kinds that we'll learn about are different kinds of sinners, right? Uh, adulterers, murderers, thieves, those that are greedy, envious, gossips, slanderers. Also the fact that we're told that uh, the wheat and the tares are going to grow together so that we may, in the church, catch some of those tares, catch some of those fish that don't belong in the kingdom. But here's what's going to happen. Verse 48 of Matthew 13, When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the Lord will send out His angels to bring in what is part of His kingdom and to cast out what is not. But what he's going to do with us, what he's doing with Peter and Andrew, is making them those who send out the message of the kingdom and who personify the kingdom. And that will catch some things, right? When they bring up their nets after they've cast them out, not only do they have fish in them, but they probably have clams and seaweed and all sorts of stuff. But then they have to sort that out, right? 
And we just read about that. So that's not something that started and ended with the apostles. That, that, is, that is part of the mission of the Messiah that continues with all those, all those that he calls to follow him. The question is, what are you casting out? Do people understand, not only from your words, but from your life, what you are putting out there? I think in today's vernacular, it's like, what kind of vibe you put now, right? People say that a lot. Do they say that? Okay. Well, we, we want to be about the kingdom. The attractiveness of what it looks like to have the love of God. What it looks like to have hope in the midst of despair. First Corinthians calls it sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The hope of something that transcends the current realities of this time and this place. What's it look like to be sacrificial and have joy in that? What's it look like to submit to a holy, sovereign God out of love, out of willingness? We're, we're displaying that. We're speaking that. And the Bible tells us also that that's the aroma of life to some and the aroma of death to others. You and I don't get to make that distinction. We have a net. We have seeds. Whatever analogy you want to use, and that's what we cast out, the kingdom. Immediately, right, they left their nets and followed him. You know, Mark is famous for using those words and for making his gospel move fast, right? But, but all the gospel writers, when they talk about situations like this, they use those words immediately. In other words, the, the, the call of God to follow Jesus, the effectual call of God, theologians call it, the one that actually grabs a hold of a person and transforms their heart and their being and causes the scales to fall from their eyes so that they see his glory and they see their sin and they repent and they follow him, that call is immediate. It changes you in an instant so that you are able to, in that point in time, see the value of the things you once held dear and see the value of him as he stands there in glory calling you unworthy, but he's calling me. Not because somehow he decided I was worthy, but because he's going to make me worthy. He loves me even though he should kill me. I'll follow him. And they do it. And we find what? That they do it imperfectly. <laughs> they, they do. Everyone in the Bible who was called by God to follow him, you can go all the way back to to, to Noah and Abraham and, and, and the whole patriarchal family, and you can follow it all the way through the Bible. Those that he calls to follow, follow him imperfectly. But they follow him with a consistent and constant hope. Because they understand who they're following. They understand who they are as well, that they're unable to follow him, that they're going to make a mess of this, but they understand grace and mercy and patience and loving kindness that comes from the God who called them to follow him. And so we go, 
and we just sang Psalm 23. You know what's beautiful about Psalm 23? Is that we think, right, that even through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll follow him through it. That's not how that psalm reads. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? You are with me. He goes there with you. He sustains you. He completes the work that he started. Psalm 22, he will surely do it. And so they go. They have some innate understanding that this is who they're following. And guess what? When they get to the arrest and trial of Jesus, no more following, is there? But he who called them is faithful. And he's going to come to them, and he's going to empower them with his unending, intimate presence of his spirit in them. So that even though we would jump off the path, the first sign of trouble, because his spirit now lives within us, we are able, equipped, desirous, even in the most troubling situation, to follow him. The hope, the truth, the reality, the fact that he's with us in the the valley of the shadow of death does not leave us even though everything else seems to say otherwise. I don't mean to go on a rabbit trail, but who in here finds, even though you may be born again, times of severe trouble and spiritual darkness? (laughs) Lauren raised his hand in the back. Yeah, I'm not asking you to do that, but I, I just know that's true for everyone. And what sustains you? Not your feelings, not getting worked up to to follow God again. What sustains you is the truth that lives within you because he lives within you. You know by his spirit that when he said in Matthew 28, I'll neither leave you nor forsake you, that even though everything else seems to communicate otherwise, that's not true. So he's there. So you continue through the valley of the shadow of death and then until you come back to life. Because of what you know, not because of what you feel. Verse 21, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. In the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So, similar scene, a similar situation. Obviously, these men are aware of Jesus and this ministry that he has begun. And they are moved by that effectual call of God to follow him in a unique, intimate way that's going to cost them everything and gain them everything. Uh, That sounds contradictory, but we're talking about the world and the kingdom to come. So they're going to lose it all. They're going to lose their lives for him. He did the same for them. But they're going to gain everything. So that by the time we get to 
the revelation, we, we see that their names are going to be written on the gates of heaven. That through the truths that they proclaimed from Jesus, people are going to come in. Jesus prayed for them, right? Towards the end of his time here on earth, he said, Lord, I am not praying for only these, but those to come who will believe through their word. These fishermen. That's who they're going to be. But in this life, they're, they're going to have a really hard, unimaginable road that you and I will probably never experience. But Jesus promised them time and time again, whatever you gave for my sake, I will return to you a hundredfold. Whether families or houses or whatever, you will be repaid for this. And they're going to live the rest of their lives on that hope. The hope of the power of his resurrection. His resurrection to life and his kingdom of glory. That's what they're living on. And by the way, they, they don't take that to heart until after the resurrection. Then everything that Jesus taught them, all the hope he gave them, all the promises he gave them is validated. They've seen it in the flesh. So they go from being these cowards who jump off the way to those who get back on despite uh, death is ahead of them. Why? They saw all the promises made true and vindicated by God in the resurrection of Jesus. So they are on the way despite whatever hurdles or lions approach them. Verse 23. By the way, before we get there, I'll have you know this. Uh, Matthew 16, Jesus continues to talk about um, discipleship. Uh, says, if anyone is to come after me, follow me. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In other words, he's, he's teaching his disciples the, the shame, the uh, persecution that I took is also yours to carry. Because we're in a foreign land here. And darkness hates light. Right? So you're not going to be well liked if you follow me. After all, the Jews didn't even like me. And they're my people. Verse 23, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, here's what's amazing. I don't know if you're like me, but oftentimes when I read of those little descriptions of how Jesus is healing people wherever he goes, 
you just kind of read through them, right? You're just kind of like, well, yeah, he's Jesus. He's, he's, he's God in the flesh. He's, he's got that authority, that power to, to do that simply by his word. You know, okay, cool. You know, move on. Uh, look at what it says. He was healing every disease and every affliction among the people. I had a professor explain it like this one time. Like, okay, Jesus walks into Liberty Hospital and clears it out. Like, everybody, everybody in the vicinity of him gets healed. That's the type of healing he's doing. And why? That is what it is like to live in the kingdom. There is none of those things. All imperfection is cast out. All infirmity is cast out. Everything that sin causes is cast out. When Jesus brings the kingdom, stuff like this happens. And while he was here on earth, he is in the flesh. These things are going to take place. He even tells people, look, uh, you know, he's the bridegroom, right? We get to Revelation, the marriage supper of the Lamb. He's the bridegroom. The church is the bride. And he tells people, when the bridegroom is present, there is time for celebration. Because what's that mean? Wherever Jesus goes, the kingdom goes. And what is the kingdom? The kingdom is, is the, the perfect reality of the fruit of the Spirit. It's not only a restoration of what was originally intended in the Garden of Eden, it's better. Because we actually enjoy being there. And, and having fellowship with God and listening to him and doing everything that he asked of his people. We no longer have a proclivity to sin in the kingdom. We, we, we see it for what it is. We have it contrasted with darkness and we value light in an eternally different way. So everything in the presence of the kingdom that's part of the presence of this current kingdom is gone. And it says, like they're, they're hearing about him all over the north of Israel, right? And beyond. And so they're bringing to him all the sick. Not only the sick, but the demon oppressed and, and all these type of people. And he's healing every one of them. The world has never seen anything like that. If that happened today, where would you be right now? You would be on the road to wherever he is. Right? That's exactly what they're doing. And he's healing them. He's healing people that, that aren't even going to be part of his kingdom. What's that tell you about God? That he's compassionate. That he reigns on the just and the unjust. That, that his mercy and grace, despite our sin, are, are perfectly seen as the awesome reality of the kingdom. The king that we look to in the kingdom is that one. And, and that's true simply by the reality of us being there. The fact that we will live in his kingdom forever says more about him than us, obviously. 
says our king is compassionate, merciful, gracious. So he's doing this crazy thing, and obviously what happens? Well, great crowds are going to follow him. From Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So now, not only does he have Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel, but he's got everybody coming up from Jerusalem and Judea, the southern part. Why? Well, he's healing everybody. Everybody's going to go. But this is interesting how Matthew sets up the Sermon on the Mount. Because in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he kind of puts on pause the healing ministry. Where did the crowds go? I don't know. They're waiting at the bottom of the mountain, I guess. But he's taking a break or whatever, so they're like, okay, time out. We'll be healed when he comes back down. But what do his disciples do? They go to him. You know what disciple means? It means learner. So there's a difference between crowds and disciples. Crowds will gather at the amazement or the, or the gifting of somebody. We'll go see that. It's not hard to get a crowd. But to get somebody who presses in to learn, that's different. That's different. And so it's going to get a lot more intimate and a lot more intense starting in chapter 5 with these people. And he's called Andrew and Peter and James and John specifically to learn that. Have compassion on the crowds. The church should have compassion on people of all kinds. That should be, that should be part of our ministry regardless if they're a follower of Christ or not. We, we are um, proclaiming these things about God when we reach out to the poor, when we reach out to the downtrodden, despite the fact whether they're going to follow Christ or not. We have compassion on them. As Karen Idol always says, I think everyone should eat. So she helps feed everybody. But, I've seen enough of those instances where you can feed somebody, you can clothe somebody, you can give somebody a leg up, but you can't make them followers of Christ. They have to be called and be given a desire by a new heart on which God writes His law, His covenant, and makes them a new creation so that they abandon everything they once were to follow him. So that's where we're going. And I hope you'll go up on the mountain to learn from Jesus. And not just uh, form as part of the crowd because of what he can do. But I hope you come to learn who he is. So I pray that you would um, respond to him. I pray that you'd prepare your hearts even now to receive his instruction um, from the Sermon on the Mount. And that you would also count the value and the cost as we get ready to partake in the elements of the Lord's Supper, the cup and the bread, representing the blood and the body.
And then I'll, uh, we'll prepare the table and we'll have the supper together.